Recording this pod, 10.44 p.m. Central Time. Sunday night, Lithuania just dominated the United States in the World Cup. I've also always wanted to say what I'm doing and what time and what time zone. That's never mattered to anyone ever for me, so pretty big deal in my mind. My name is Morgan Cahill. You're listening to the Morgan Cahill Podcast. You may ask yourself, who is Morgan Cahill? Genuinely, great question. Um, It's not about who you are. It's not about who you are. Shut the fuck up, okay? (laughs) Chill out for a minute. I am an avid NBA fan. I care about basketball, and unfortunately, I don't have a lot of people in my life that love basketball. I started making a little bit of YouTube stuff maybe about a year ago. I said that I love basketball, I love the NBA, but I don't have any friends to talk about the NBA with. I did that for maybe three months on and off. I only had one person reach out where they're like, hey, you piece of shit, text me about the NBA. And Chris, buddy, I will. But for most people, most podcasts, most sports content, of which I consume almost exclusively, it's about debate. It's about like figuring out who is right and who is wrong. In the NBA now, we follow players. We don't follow teams. The identity of being a fan is changing versus my childhood. I grew up and I really loved NBA Live. That was my introduction to basketball. (laughs) On my PlayStation and Xbox as a kid, I loved playing NBA Live. I loved Melo, playing as those Denver Nuggets. I think they had Marcus Camby. Ricky Davis for the Celtics and Cavs went fucking insane. But I never really watched any basketball. Then I remember maybe it's around 2007, and my dad was living in D.C. at the time. He sold cars, and I think I was living with my grandparents, or I was staying with my grandparents, and <laughs> we were out. There's a fire in the backyard at my grandparents' house. My dad's in. I'm stoked. My fucking dad is in. He's playing this Bill Engvall comedy record that I still give him shit about to this day. And he tells me, because he's a Celtics fan, and I, by default, am a Celtics fan. I always play with the Celtics for uh, NBA Live. We just fucking traded for Kevin Garnett. What? Are you kidding me? I thought it was awesome. Sebastian Telfair, Al Jefferson, some other pieces. And I remember going on ESPN.com on the family computer that weekend and sort of looking at the roster, trying to figure out what does shooting guard mean? Why does Paul Pierce look like that? That headband is ridiculous. That guy's going to shit himself in a couple years. I just know it. I called it. Say what you want, I called it. But I started developing sort of a fandom, and doing so, the team that I kind of liked won, I bandwagoned on the Celtics, and immediately when they weren't good anymore, I stopped watching. Girls were involved in school, sports, other stuff. I got addicted to video games for a couple years. But I was watching basketball a lot is like a teenager, and not at all. Well, cut to maybe I'm 20 years old or, or something like that. I'm, I'm 26 now recording this, about to turn 27. I'm working three jobs for the fuck of it. I don't really know why. I dropped out of college, figuring my shit out. It's the middle of the night, 2017, I think, and I'm working a night job in a Marriott in West Virginia. 
and the TV in the lobby is always on, and at a night job, they're just stoked that you're not doing meth, or that if you are doing meth, you're polite about it. And it's Blazers Thunder, <clears throat> and I'm watching this game. I don't know any of these players, I realize. Like, LeBron is still in the league. Pierce isn't. Kevin Garnett isn't. Kobe Bryant isn't. That might have been one of the first seasons without Kobe, or maybe the second season without Kobe. And I'm watching this game, and it's kind of a shootout back and forth. Paul George, Russell Westbrook were names that I knew. I knew that the Thunder were good. Damian Lillard was a name that I didn't. Well, it's getting close to the end of the game. And tie game, 115-115, maybe 15 seconds left in the game. And Damian Lillard is dribbling out the clock roughly 37 feet away from the basket. In my history watching basketball as a kid, I just cannot wait for him to drive in, take the contested layup, or maybe try to create space with some sort of Chris Paul leg-extended mid-ranger. And what he did changed basketball in the way that I saw it forever in my mind. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two and a half seconds, he pulls out, out of his deep bag, he, that was weird, wait, out of his deep he pulls out of his bag this 37-foot contested bye-bye shot, draining a game winner, sending the thunder home, and destroying the Paul George Russell Westbrook Oklahoma City reign forever. And from that moment, I became a basketball fan. I was jumping up and down, and I now identify as a Blazers fan because I just I felt that energy of being a fan. Dude, it was fucking cool. Cut to now, I'm a complete nerd over the sport. I'm all the time on Fanspo, running mock trades, trying to figure out this year, what does the three-guard lineup look like five years in a row with Portland? A three-guard lineup, by the way, when you have Anthony Simons, Scoot Henderson, and Shaden Sharp, is a little more exciting than when you're trying to win with Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. But this podcast for me is not about creating content or competing with a debate show or having my name mean anything. I want to talk about what it is to be a fan of the league. I want to talk about all the, th- all the thoughts that come up in my head in the middle of the night thinking, ooh, I wonder, I wonder what the Timberwolves look like this year. Towns was hurt most of last year. And I don't have an outlet to talk about that stuff. And there's certainly not a lot of media outlets where we can have those discussions and it's not about who's right or who's stupid or you fucking idiot. Bill Simmons, you're completely overlooking this player. You don't even know their name. I want to be a fan of basketball. And I'd like to do that with a community of people. And this is my way of reaching out. Today we're doing top 10 NBA storylines. Let's start with this. This is just a little thought that I had. Two seasons ago, in the offseason, the San Antonio Spurs and the Atlanta Hawks engaged in a trade. And roughly the structure of that trade was DeJounte Murray for three first-round picks as well as salary filler from the San Antonio Spurs to the Atlanta Hawks. I want to revisit that trade, what it meant for both of those teams at that time, and whether or not they would redo that trade today. At the time, it made a lot of sense. Trey Young as a dominant scorer and ball handler really needs someone else to create offense in that in that offense. We had seen them be pretty competitive 
in the Sixers series of years past. I mean, they really gave the Bucks hell on that conference championship a few years back. But it it can't just be isolation basketball. It was like Eastern Conference James Harden without the hairline. <laughs> and what I thought was really neat about it was it gave the Hawks, which they did not have at the time, a point of attack defender. And you look at the rest of the team and maybe how they can build out around at that time. You don't know if John Collins' three-point shot is coming back. Onyeko Kongwu is still sort of like a guy in the background, but Clint Capella, solid rim protector. So point of attack defender, rim protector, two ball handlers, and two creators. What they lacked is three-point shooting, and that was heavily criticized at the time of the deal. What was also criticized is Trey Young's ability to play off ball, which in certain moments has still looked like an issue. I want to say that I am a Trey Young DeJounte Murray believer. I actually think that the Hawks are going to be dynamite this year, and that's something that we'll talk about a little bit later. But the Spurs have a little bit different of a perspective on this. Kind of one of those nothing teams in the middle, stuck, not really going anywhere. Finally, for the first time in basically my lifetime, commit to tanking. To do that, they trade away DeJounte Murray. And to be honest... I think it landed the Victor Wimbenyama. I don't think that there's a chance they end up with the same lottery odds with DeJounte Murray on the team. And because of that, this trade was worth it for them, without a doubt, even minus the draft compensation, which is TBD on the value. But now you have Victor Wimbenyama, and you have Keldon Johnson, you have Jeremy Sohan, and you have Devin Vassell, who I think is a monster. I think Devin Vassell is a monster. In 2K, he's an absolute monster. And in 2K, Keldon Johnson is too much of a monster. Like one of those guys they get wrong in Madden every year. How do you build a team around Victor Wembenyama? I think DeJounte Murray would be a prototypical point guard. If you could have excellent point of attack defense, uh, which I think he provides, although his defense is a little bit overrated, he gambles a lot, very steel heavy. But he has good size and good playmaking ability. More important than either of those, he has speed, and he can get to it in the transition. If you're trying to maximize what Victor Wimbenyama brings to the table, I think DeJounte Murray is a fantastic piece. And I think he's relatively cheap compared to some of the options on the market. Maybe Tyrese Maxey is available via some sort of Damian Lillard trade. Damian Lillard is certainly available. James Harden is available. Both of them, I think, are far too old to match on the timeline. But DeJounte Murray being just 26 fits the timeline. He fits everything. So the question isn't whether or not it was a good trade at the time. It's whether or not these teams right now today would undo it. Let's say it wouldn't affect the odds, and the Spurs still land with Victor Wimbanyama. Would the Spurs right now rather have three Atlanta first-round picks or DeJounte Murray? And would Atlanta rather have DeJounte Murray, who as, although I'm optimistic, an awkward fit with Trey Young? Or would they rather have three more first-round picks as well as all of their young people to potentially take a swing at some sort of forward? I think it's fascinating. And I think it's less fascinating than I want it to be. So <laughs> hear me out on this. I genuinely believe that if the Spurs could reverse that trade, they have the salary cap to do it. They have to spend it on some money that they would. What's difficult about this is you have to have the conversation on specifically a theoretical concept because 
it doesn't sound like DeJounte Murray's experience in San Antonio was amazing. His relationship with the players, his relationship with the coaches, nothing has come out that seemed ridiculous, but Murray in interviews has talked about things being estranged. You wonder where that comes from? I mean, they weren't trying to compete. Maybe in a more competitive environment they can get together better, but I think the Spurs would redo it, and I don't think that the Hawks would, but I want to touch on that later. Number two on my list of top 10 NBA storylines is I want to talk about the aging bucks, and I'm going to take a sip from my Coors Banquet here because this isn't like an IPA kind of podcast. This is an Arkansas hotel podcast kind of sitch going on right now, so you all stick with me. <laughs> about a year ago, I made a YouTube short which I understand is not the highest quality medium of content available. Talking about the average age of the Bucks, And I think I was early on it, and I'm sure that there was somebody earlier, but two or three seasons ago when we were talking about the Lakers and how they're so old and what you expect to win with Dwight Howard, this is pre-Russell Westbrook Lakers. I... It was ridiculous. I think the average age of the team was 32 and a half, or more or, or potentially. And it's a really weird roster construction. You have to basically win now. And if you're going to win now, you have to stay healthy. And if you're going to stay healthy, you better sit those people fucking down for a couple months. The Bucks were within a year or so of that average age in that season. We have progressed where the Milwaukee Bucks have an average age roster of nearly 32 years. And it's worse than that. Milwaukee's top three, their big three players, and you can almost expand it to a big four because of how important he is to the team. Obviously, Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Brooke Lopez. Brooke, they kept this offseason, although I think it was a slight overpay, and they brought his brother Robin in, who was actually formidable for Orlando last year. They're old. Brooke Lopez is 35. Chris Middleton is 33. Drew Holiday is 32, going to turn 33 this year. Chris Middleton turns 34 next offseason, and he was just extended again. This isn't to shit on any of these players. I love Chris Middleton. I love Drew Holiday. And I would have killed for my Blazers to have traded for either of them when they were available in the past. But they didn't. And Milwaukee won a championship, and it's all worth it. But it comes at a cost. Chris Middleton looked like a shell of himself last year. And that's not a criticism, man. If Chris Middleton were 80% of his prime version of himself next season, it would not be enough to win a championship. And that's just next season. The lack of depth on this team and the lack of young talent or assets to make the team better relies on Drew, Chris, Brooke, and Giannis having significant luck in the health department and aging gracefully. And players are playing well with age you know Chris Paul is a decent player at 37 LeBron at 38 had a record season last year most players didn't you know and I'm not saying 32 33 34 is the oldest in the world but if Brooke Lopez turns 36 during the season and we expect him to be what he has been it's just asking a lot I think that the Bucks window is short I do do not think when I look at the Eastern Conference that 
they're better than Philly. I don't think they're better than Boston. Uh, Philly pending James Harden transaction. And I don't think that, that they're better than Miami. I actually, if I'm being honest, think that they would require perfect health to even beat the Atlanta, Cleveland, New York sort of tier. This is a team that lost in the first round last year. And the Miami Heat were fantastic. Do not get me wrong, but a first round exit to an aging team around a superstar who we expect to ask out. We're only not having that conversation, so nobody jumps on us to say, shut up, Giannis isn't asking for a trade, don't even talk about it. Whether he asks for a trade to Chicago or he dies in a Milwaukee hotel room, the Bucks is done. It, like it's, it's, it's just done. And Giannis can overpower it. If they win the championship next year, it would not be the craziest thing in the world. They certainly have a better chance than my Blazers. But I just don't see it. I don't see how they do it. Maybe they're good. I, I, I don't know. But Marion Bochamp is practically the only 25 and under asset that's remarkable in any way. And he's kind of terrible. Really good G League Ignite prospect. Um great size has the potential to be like a really solid three and d wing he had that game this past off season and Euroleague where he had like 27 four and four he's yet to show even a little bit of that in an nba game and when he does let's talk about it but even so he's an older prospect already and the fact that he didn't demonstrate anything for a bucks team who needed him last year i think lowers what his ceiling is can he be an NBA player? Yes. Can he be a rotation player? Yes. But the Bucks need him to be so much more than that if they are to remain healthy. I don't think that they do. I think one year from today, the Giannis conversation is going to heat up significantly. And I think if we're unlucky on the injury side, by the trade deadline, the conversation starts. That doesn't mean he gets moved. It doesn't mean he ever gets moved. But that does mean we start talking about it, which is cool for the podcast game. Number three on my list of top 10 NBA storylines is the Timberwolves point guard situation. <laughs> Anthony Edwards had 35 points today against Lithuania. Kevin Durant's World Cup record is 38, and you have to think that he knew that. They needed every point. Reeves was getting just pocketed and bodied. Mikhail Bridges. Kerr's rotations are really weird because they're trying to play with such little size which is almost more of a roster construction problem than it is a Steve Kerr issue. Like, whether it's Josh Hart or Brandon Ingram in the starting lineup, Jaron Jackson Jr. is a four. We know that. All that aside, Anthony Edwards is the guy. He was a top 30 player last year, first-time All-Star. This year, it would surprise nobody if he was a top 10 player in the league. And what do you need to contend in the NBA? It's a top 10 guy. I love the Timberwolves roster. It's actually really well built, and they added a lot of depth pieces. I think they're starting five going into the year. Mike Conley, Anthony Edwards, Jaden McDaniels, Carl Anthony Towns, Rudy Gobert, which on paper, which this goes back to like the Brooklyn on paper nets, is remarkable. Mike Conley is unselfish. He's excellent and lethal in the pick and roll with Rudy Gobert. Carl Anthony Towns is one of the best three-point shooters in the world and will have the ability to roam and operate off ball in a huge way. Jaden McDaniels and Rudy Gobert are probably the best point-of-attack and rim-protector asset duo in the league. I think Jaden McDaniels is like a low-key stud. 
He's up for a contract extension, which I don't think he's getting this year, just because I think they want to see the Carl Anthony Towns thing another year. He's going to get four for 90 at least. But, I mean, he could be a sneaky, like, four for 120, four for 125 guy. Their bench is what improved a lot. I mean, last year they were playing Jalen Noel. They were playing Austin Rivers significant minutes. Uh, Nas Reed was fantastic, but he hurt his hand right at the start of the playoffs. Nikhil Alexander-Walker broke out a little bit. I really liked him in <laughs> New Orleans, and then he was a part of the trade package for C.J. McCollum. Uh, and I was like, fucking let's go. We've got Naw on the team. Uh, and we traded him for a second-rounder and basically nothing else to the Utah Jazz. But Nikhil Alexander-Walker is fantastic. Kyle Anderson had a really like productive season for them. His playmaking is really solid, and maybe if he keeps Rudy Gobert in line by punching him in the mouth, that'd, that'd be pretty cool. A couple additions that I really liked, Shake Milton from Philly. Shake had that like 13.5 point per game season like two seasons ago. 6'5", really good size, decent score. He's just like a solid all-around wing, which is the kind of guy they need on the bench, taking minutes away from dudes like Austin Rivers, who I want to like more than I do. They had a Troy Brown Jr., um, who's only 24, according to Fanspo, which doesn't sound right, but he does look youthful. He's got a good smile. His hairline, so he, he could very well be 24, thinking about it. I guess he's a clutch guy. Born in Las Vegas, Centennial High School in Vegas. I think that their bench is, is solid. And then, of course, Nas Reed, someone I really loved in the draft, Leonard Miller, who Sam Vecini had as a mid to late lottery talent. They got him in the second round, like the 41st pick. And he shined in the G League. I was in the Timberwolf subreddit, and people were asking, like, what is Leonard Miller's ceiling? Assume everything goes right. And two or three people said Lamar Odom, and I just think that's a remarkable comp for him. I think this team is going to be good. And Mike Conley is the perfect point guard for them six years ago. It's a lot to ask of a 35-year-old Mike Conley to make things work. And maybe the Timberwolves win the chip this year. Maybe they win it next year. That would be the coolest storyline in the world. I love that green in their logo. But if they don't, I think they need to figure something else out. Mike Conley this year is on an expiring deal worth $24.5 million. I think we're going to know by the trade deadline whether or not the Gobert and Towns things work. If it doesn't, one of them's getting shipped out, and Cat is the one with trade value. Rudy is the one with negative value. It's just how it would have to happen. Bill Simmons got crucified for saying that Minnesota would be like a sneaky, fun Damian Lillard team which I love. I think that that would be so cool to see him next to Ant with Gobert, McDaniels. Maybe you slot Kyle Anderson in as the fourth starter. But let's say the Gobert-Towns thing works. They have really minimal assets to figure something else out. Even if you combine all the minimum contracts available, you take Josh Minot, Leonard Miller, uh, Jordan McLaughlin, Wendell Moore, their pick from last year, who I, I kind of think is sneaky good. Uh, you add Troy Brown in. You're really only looking at like $14 million in salary. 
And if you re-sign Mike Conley, I can't imagine it's for much less than his current deal, which could create a little bit of salary cap, but only in a sign-and-trade scenario because the Timberwolves are operating near or at the cap already. A name that I like, a number that you can get to, and I would look out for this because if things are moving this year, a lot of chips are already pushed in, and the dude's already played there before. Look out for Tyus Jones. He's on an expiring $14 million deal in Washington. Previous experience in the Andrew Wiggins era, uh, which, which I think is really interesting. He's the best backup in the league, and in his moments starting, he shined. 37% plus three-point shooter, really good playmaker and facilitator. And if Mike Conley is a longer-term solution here, letting him come off the bench or Tyus Jones come off the bench or depending on matchup switching – I just think he would be a really good fit. And if Carl Anthony Towns doesn't work out, this is irrelevant. But if he does, I love Tyus Jones on the Timberwolves. I think it's pretty cool, actually. I would love to see it. Okay. Let's check it out. What do we got next? This one I'm afraid to say out loud a little bit. And I'm only afraid to say it because I haven't watched a ton of Hornets games. So... Some of this comes theoretical, and when you look at the basketball reference page for different players, it can be misleading. So, in saying that, correct me where I'm wrong. The Hornets were given more shit than anybody for passing on Scoot Henderson for Brandon Miller in this past draft. I remember falling to my knees when that happened, because I thought, oh my god, they're trading Damian Lillard. This is happening. We're getting Zion Williamson. Well, that didn't happen. We selected Scoo, and somehow Dame's still on the roster, and I don't want to talk about it. But Brandon Miller is a good prospect. Whether he's great or not is up for grabs, but he's a good prospect. And I think that the Hornets team, in the way that it's constructed now, is in a decent spot, better than they're getting credit for. Let me start by saying picks like James Booknight, Kai Jones, and everybody before them, atrocious. I mean, completely atrocious, with the obvious exception of LaMelo Ball. This team has had issues with the locker room. They tried to replace Steve Clifford with Kenny Atkinson, who took the job, talked to his wife. She probably said, I'm not fucking moving to Charlotte. Declined the job, and they brought back Steve Clifford. It is a nightmare of a front office. Michael Jordan thinks he's selling, that he doesn't want to sell. Now he is selling. All of that being said... I love it. I love the way this team is built, and I think they're better than expected next year. Let's talk about just their young core, because they've got some older guys that are really on the fence, like what ends up happening with them. Um, LaMelo Ball, I think is great. 6'7", 180, little lean, but one of the best playmakers in the league. Him and Tyrese Halliburton probably have it, and who knows who's the better playmaker. Halliburton's the better player, and I'd love to see someone try to correct me on that. LaMelo can very well go 7 for 11 from three-point, like absolute flamethrower, but he could play unselfish as well, and that's what's so unique about this. Despite his size, he is a cone on defense. I mean, he has the potential to be a great defender, and I think his brother Lonzo uh, shows that. And if he can be a great defender, this team's ceiling increases drastically, but even if it doesn't, the total size they could play with I think is pretty remarkable. LaMelo Ball, Brandon Miller, Miles Bridges, P.J. Washington, Mark Williams. 
Mark Williams, seven foot one out of Duke, two or so drafts ago. He had a really solid season last year. Post trade deadline, the Charlotte Hornets had one of the best defenses in the league. They snuck out that win that almost pulled Dallas out of the playoffs, or I guess did pull Dallas out of the playoffs. They have a lot of size and they have a lot of shooting. And they have the best playmaking, if not the second best playmaking guard in the league. So if LaMelo can stay healthy, the drive and kick opportunities with Miles Bridges, PJ Washington, and Brandon Miller, who all are 37, 38% plus three point shooters at their peak, is crazy. Size and defensive ability and defensive effort are not the same thing. But with length, less effort becomes a little bit easier to hide. Miles Bridges, I think, is actually only 6'5". It says 6'6 here, and he also, who knows what kind of player he is or how the locker room embraces him after all of his controversy, which I won't weigh in on at all. Um, prior to that, he had emerged as almost like a mini Jason Tatum. Like, if if Tatum's game was a wing, it would be Miles Bridges. And Miles Bridges and Jason Tatum aren't in the same category, but Bridges projects as a low-level all-star at his ceiling. Brandon Miller at his ceiling projects as like a poor man's Paul George. And P.J. Washington, who they re- just re-signed, I think it was a 3-for-48 deal, has small ball center capability. He can really shoot, although I think this last year percentages sort of went down. He did have that skyrocket game where he scored like 41 points or some crazy shit. I love, I love that. I, I love a team who can have several spot-up dudes um, that have good size. I mean, th- that that's what the fantastic uh, Hawks team, based on what I've read, seemed like they were. You know, the Horford. Um, see, I, I wasn't even watching basketball at that point. But um, th- that, that Hawks team, they had like 60 wins that year. The way people talk about them make it seem like they could shoot the shit out of the ball. And I think this team could shoot the shit out of the ball. Where it's a little dangerous is that there's not a lot of creation ability. By all accounts, it doesn't seem like Brandon Miller can dribble. Miles Bridges can create for himself. He can drive. He's a really explosive dunker. I don't know how much court vision or basketball IQ he has. I mean, that's helpful that someone outside of LaMelo can handle the ball, but I, I don't know. I don't exactly see it. P.J. Washington isn't a ball handler. Mark Williams has some potential low post game. Um, I, I think he could definitely be a dude in this league, like a top half starting center. Clint Capella type, nasty in the pick and roll. I don't know that he's ever an offensive-oriented center, but that's not what he was drafted for. Where this team gets weak immediately is their bench, and their expiring assets are extremely weird. Gordon Hayward on a one-year, $31 million deal. Uh, Terry Rozier on a three-year deal. Uh, all of it guaranteed. No team option in any of it. Three years, $23 million in 2023, $24 million in 2024, $26 million in 2025. They owe him $75 million, and he doesn't match it their timeline at all. I don't know that he matches their style of play either. I do not love the LaMelo Ball, Terry Rozier backcourt. I think Terry's a good player. Those Boston playoff runs weren't nothing. What to look out for with this team this year is what happens with Gordon Hayward. Do they get rid of this expiring asset? Do they maybe extend him one more year to have a trade chip to go for the future? Are they like a sneaky Siakam team? 
all of that is something to look out for because the Hornets can't draft and they really don't have another way to improve their roster. They don't have expendable young players with any value. Next on the list, this is interesting to me, I, I think, a lot. Uh, who are the Knicks keepers while big game hunting? <laughs> the Knicks have been bad the entire time I've watched basketball. And even as a kid when I was playing like NBA video games, the legend of like Patrick Ewing and the what-ifs that came with that were just Bill Simmons-esque nightmares in New York residents' heads. They've been bad my whole life. I mean, the Knicks have, I'm 26 years old. The Knicks have sucked most of my life. The fact that you have to even bring up Lynn's sanity. If Jeremy Lynn played for a reputable franchise, we'd never talk about him in the world. But because he played for the Knicks and because they stank just so damn bad, it's something to talk about. Stoudemire, Mello, Jeremy Lynn. I mean, those are the guys that I think about when I think about the Knicks. And I don't think phoenix stoudemire either i think that says something they're a team that has been good for the last few years i really like this current team jalen brunson ended up probably the best deal in the league i, I think that leon rose could probably win executive year specifically for the jalen brunson deal but when you look at their roster and you look at the assets they have available i think everybody knows that they're angling to make a move soon they were in on donovan mitchell I don't know that the player they're looking for is available, but what the question is, is whoever that ends up being, Embiid, maybe Giannis in a few years asks out, maybe a lesser player like Siakam that they take soon. Who are the keepers in this Knicks core? I don't think that it's obvious. I mean, even just looking at some of the first names, you don't get that far without saying, eh, well, he could be expendable. So... Jalen Brunson, obviously, I think you have a ball handler. This is sort of why they're not in on the Damian Lillard sweepstakes. I don't think that Jalen Brunson and Damian Lillard as a backcourt is smart at all. In the same way that I don't think Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland is a good backcourt. But they have this Evan Fournier deal, $18.8 million with a team option next year. So you could sort of look at it as an expiring asset, um, but the team is operating just $4 million away from the cap. So it's not like they really get that space. If you don't look at it as an expiring asset for them, it could be an expiring asset as a trade chip. With a combination of Evan Fournier, Isaiah Hartenstein, and one of their wings, whether it's Barrett or Hart or DiVincenzo, you can get to $35-ish million pretty easily by throwing guys together. So if Jalen Brunson is the core piece, who fits around him, and does it depend what star is available? This is one of those weird scenarios where I think depending on who is available, that is what will dictate what players are untouchable, because truthfully, I don't know that they have a single untouchable player available. This is, this is my list. If I'm the Knicks, and we don't know the player that's available, and I just have to commit to building around a core... It's Jalen Brunson. It's R.J. Barrett. He's still young. I like what I've seen about him. And it's Julius Randle. I like Randle. I think he's completely underrated as a player. I think his contract was scoffed at immediately, but he's actually pretty good value for what it is. Where you go wrong with 
Randall is depending on him as your first or second option. But with the contract that he has, he could very well be your second, third, or fourth option. I don't know who else stays. Like, I don't think anybody else is a must. Emmanuel Quickly is a guy who you could be like, ooh, he's fantastic. Great offensive game. In theory, great shooter, although he fell off in the playoffs. An excellent defender. He can fight around screens despite not having great size. He has great wingspan. Uh, and this year, he is on a $4.1 million team option. So after this year, who knows what happens with him? Very attractive in a trade asset to have a young player, only 24 years old, but the upside quickly has at $4.1 million. He's not locked into one of these Anthony Simons one or four for 120 deals. Um, him and Quentin Grimes, I think, are your trade pieces if you keep Barrett. Because if you're landing a major star and you don't trade Barrett, I think you're going to have to trade both of them just because the pick assets they have, well, the quantity is great, the quality isn't. Most of these picks are trade swaps or good teams first, and, and we've seen those be devalued continually. Um, Embiid is one of the players that we're looking at, but I don't even know that it's worth speculating. What I do think is certain is that outside of Jalen Brunson, R.J. Barrett, and Julius Randle, we can see any player on this next roster change when a player worthwhile becomes available. Let's move down the list. We're doing good. See, this is this is fun. Otherwise, I would just be in Arkansas. And I'm looking at the sprinklers in my hotel room. Like, I guess I should explain. I'm not from Arkansas. Um, kind of not from anywhere. I've moved a good bit. But I, I'm traveling for work right now. I'm just outside of Memphis. I was telling my organization I'm going to be on Microsoft Teams flashing a gun like jaw. Number six on the list. What would a successful season for the Jazz look like? It's interesting. We talk about teams like the Chicago Bulls a lot as this in-the-middle disaster. But it doesn't have to be a disaster for you to be in the middle. And it's almost a luxury, as much as it is a curse, to be a team that is young with a lot of assets to be almost too good. Last year, the Jazz got the ninth pick in the draft, and they landed Taylor Hendricks, who I think is a remarkably good fit with their team. But tanking seems to be the strategy of most major teams when they trade away their star players. And the Jazz, by all accounts, did not tank last year. Towards the tail end of the season, they started losing games. But they were a playoff team. They played like a playoff team. And this year, they got better. They're not going to rely on Taylor Horton Tucker playing 28 minutes a game down the stretch. I love this Jazz team. I, th I think they're constructed beautifully. Um, they drafted Keontae George, who was a summer league darling, at a Baylor combo guard who showed amazing playmaking ability. I didn't watch a ton of his tape at Baylor, but I didn't know he could pass like that. And he's efficient. He's really efficient. He's explosive. He can dunk like crazy. He's kind of like a Razorback. Like he's not, he's not Dylan Brooks on defense or anything, but. The way he plays, the size that he has, I just, I like it. I can see him projecting as a good defender. They have Ochak Baji. They drafted this year, obviously, Taylor Hendricks out of UCF. 6'9", forward, who is a decent shooter, really good playmaker. 
a lot of draft experts talked is like a perfect connecting role player. Um, very Tobias Harris, um, which seems like an insult, but imagine if Tobias Harris made five million and not forty-five million a year. But they've got a lot of great pieces on this team too. Larry Markinen, the Finnish, the uh, uh, <laughs> Finnish Army soldier, is still pretty young, and he's probably close to the prime of his career. I think he's twenty-six or twenty-seven. Um, he had a breakout season, winning Most Improved Player and being voted an All Star in the West. Kelly Olynyk is a really solid stretch big man, 6'11", 32 years old. I, I was listening to the No Dunks podcast earlier this year, and they talked about how anytime uh, somebody tries to drive in um, and pump fake on Kelly Olynyk, he falls for it, and he's just like the worst defensive player. And then during the World Cup, right after that episode dropped, he had this monster defensive performance. Colin Sexton, who just a couple years ago averaged over 20 a game for Cleveland. Jordan Clarkson, who was a just flamethrower sixth man last year. And they added John Collins with just like a couple second rounders. And John Collins just a few years ago with a jump shot is basically an all-star. John Collins without a jump shot is just a tall guy. And I I guess they're going to figure out which version of him he is, but... It's sort of the Danny Ainge thing, like buy low on players and sell high on them. This is a team who I wouldn't be shocked if they sold on marketing, and I wouldn't be shocked if they built around him. I wouldn't be shocked if they rehabbed Collins' value and shipped him off for two firsts and a good young player next year. I just I don't know the direction that they take. And as we look to the trade deadline, I think that they're a really fun team to watch. Not what their record is, but how good their best players are. If their best players, I guess not even how good their best players are, what is the distance between their best players and their developing players? If they could bridge the gap between the distance of their best and developing guys, they'll probably maintain the team. But if Markinen is miles ahead of George and he's miles ahead of Taylor Hendricks, miles ahead of Colin Sexton, of Ogbaji out of Kansas, I think if that gap is large by Christmas, I wouldn't be shocked to see at least Clarkson traded, who's 32, and I don't know matches the timeline for the rest of the team. Um, it, it, it should be interesting. They're at the very least going to be a really fun league pass team, so something to look out for. Houston made a lot of moves this past year, um, the first of which bringing in Ima Udoka from Boston or I guess from prison, or wherever they got him. Um, and by proxy, bringing in Ima Udoka, not bringing in James Harden. One of the most fascinating use of cap saves that I've ever seen in my life, and it's, it's being praised as this genius move because the Fred Van Vliet deal uh, is really only a three-year deal. And the Dylan Brooks deal is, I think it's a four-year deal, but three are guaranteed. Or I mean, most of the money that they tied up, the Jock Landale deal, deal four for 32 for Jock Landale, only one year is guaranteed, $24 million in non-guaranteed money. They could cut him next year and have no problem. Even the Kevin Porter Jr. deal, they signed him for like a four for 82, and only the first year was guaranteed. So he's projected to make like $17 million this year, and they can cut him the day before training camp, if I understand that correctly. All of that sounds good in theory. You know, you got to spend the money on somebody. 
maybe when free agency comes up in a few years, this cap space becomes available and you could go and grab a guy. But not really. Because at that point, Jalen Green, Shingun, Jabari Smith, Cam Whitmore, it, it really all of their young guys would also be up to be paid and extension eligible by that time. Jalen Green's extension eligible, I think, next season. <laughs> With that being said, I love the team. <laughs> and I don't think that it was a bad deal. And I think that they'd be good long-term contributors. Houston is going to be a really fun league pass team because of what they end up doing with their rotations. What is their starting five? Udoka with Boston really loved a strong rim protector. And we saw Robert Williams have the best season of his career under Udoka. I think a lot of that is the way that their perimeter defenders funnel defenses if I understand it right, based on a YouTube video that I saw, it's very similar to what the Jazz used to do with Rudy Gobert. You, you funnel perimeter attackers uh, in certain paths to your perimeter defender or to, to your rim protector. Uh, because of that, you can give them an angle of an advantage. It's sort of like the opposite strategy of the James Harden step back, uh, where he can create an angle advantage by taking the additional gather step and two steps backward. Um, regardless of how bad I butchered that, I, I think Amin Thompson showed out in G League. He is going to be so exciting. And he played point guard for the Overtime Elite team. And his brother was more of a wing, played shooting guard, small forward. Amin Thompson, is he the backup point guard? Is he the backup second dude? You know, like, could he be a three in the starting lineup eventually this year? I'm really curious to see how they use him because I do think he gets minutes at the wing. And I think playmaking around your roster will be really solid because they have no variability in who their starting center is. Let's not kid ourselves. The Jock Landale deal was a good backup for too good of money because they had to spend it anyways. But that's okay because I'm high on Shingun, who reportedly grew two inches in the offseason. Shingun is this gifted passer, the former Turkish MVP, can create all of this movement. I, I even talked about in a YouTube short last year how it might be okay that Kevin Porter Jr. isn't a real point guard because Alperin Shingun has the potential to be. I think he's more Demonis Sabonis than Nikola Jokic, but if that's a ceiling, holy shit, this team could be good. And Jabari Smith showed out proving he was far above the competition in the second year in G League, or in, in Summer League. It was crazy. He had that 38-point game, the confidence. He has some, like, off-the-drivel stuff that he's been working on. Last year, his shot was falling short a little bit, which happens to a lot of guys because the three-point line is just different in the NBA. But it looks silky, man. I mean, that thing is beautiful. It's, it's, not, it's not falling short. There's no rim hitting. I think Jabari Smith and Shingun should be the best two players on this team, and both should be considered for most improved player. Van Vliet is your point guard. Jalen Green is your two. Brooks is your three. Smith is your four. Shingun is your five. When Shingun sits, I wonder how many minutes Jock Landell actually gets because Jabari Smith has the size and versatility to be a decent backup four. I mean, he's a really versatile defender. I'm not saying he's a rim protector, but or backup five. I, I think that he could be the backup center 
And if he's the backup center, that opens up four minutes probably probably for Cam Whitmore, who has some size. And, and I think he ends up being lost in the shuffle a little bit this year, if I'm being honest. Although I love the talent, and to get him at the 20th pick is just an, an unbelievable skill. I just don't think there's a ton of wing rotation time for him. They already got rid of a couple dudes this year, which should open up minutes, but I don't think Udoka is going to play like an 11-man rotation. I mean, I, th- I think outside of the starting five that I listed, I think Whitmore gets some minutes, but for the most part, it's Kevin Porter Jr. and Jay Sean Tate. Ahmed Thompson probably gets backup point guard duties, uh, which gives KPJ off-ball duties on the two, and he's like a 50% three-point shooter off-ball when someone can create for him. And I think this team is going to be able to create for him. So I would almost like to see a little bit of KPJ in instead of Jalen Green. Not that he's a better player, but just to see what the fit is like. Like some lineups where you run Amin Thompson, Kevin Porter Jr., Dylan Brooks, Jabari Smith, Alperin, Shingun. I just think it could be really, really fascinating. And then the obvious question of Fred Van Vliet, who is he? How good of a player is he? What do the numbers mean? He is a staggeringly low field goal percentage player. It's it's weird, actually. But you wonder how much of that you can attribute to the Toronto Raptors' lack of offensive identity and the Toronto Raptors' inability to create any three-point action outside of Fred Van Vliet having to take these remarkably difficult pull-up shots. Fred's going to have a lot of space in this offense as he's going to be the defense's least concern. And I actually think he's kind of clutch as shit. He's a great mid-range shooter. He's a decent three-point shooter. The question all factors in to around the rim. And I think that because Shingun is such a playmaking threat, he's going to be able to draw bigs out from the lane to create driving room for Thompson, for Green, for Fred Van Vliet. I hope that we see it. I think they're the fifth seed this year. I don't know for sure. I think they're the fifth seed. Most improved candidates. Last year, Larry Markinen won the award, and he should have. Uh, completely out of nowhere. Would Cleveland have still done the deal knowing Larry Markinen was going to become who he became? And would Larry Markinen have become who he became in Cleveland versus in Utah where he was handed the keys? I don't know. But most of the time, the most improved candidate ends up being someone who has increased opportunity, whether it's deserved or not. Julius Randle, Larry Markinen. This year, I set aside three people who I think will have increased media attention and or increased opportunity. The number one most improved candidate is Anthony Simons. Even if Damian Lillard doesn't play or isn't traded, I don't think he plays another second for the Blazers, which is heartbreaking but exciting in a way. I'm curious to see what we bring next, and Anthony Simons averages over 26 points as the starter. I think he's the starting two-guard as well. I, I think they probably run a three-guard lineup. It's Scoot, it's Anthony Simons, it's Shaden Sharp, it's Jeremy Grant, it's Yusuf Nurkic. Grant is a decent scorer, and I think his two-man game with Anthony Simons is already good. He's an elite shooter, and because of Scoot Henderson's ability to get to the rim, to just run, to move on transition, I think he gets more open looks than he did when he was playing with Dame. I just think the ball moves better. 
this isn't going to be the isolation offense that it was in the past. I pray to God. And because of that, I think Anthony Simons averages like 27, three and five or something like that. Um, would really love to see him go. Alternatively, my brother bought me an Anthony Simons jersey last summer. So I just pray to God he's not traded because it's the only jersey I have. <laughs> Beyond that, this one, get ready for No one would be mad at me about this. Kobe White. When Lonzo Ball's knees decided to eviscerate, the Bulls were in shambles. The once beloved one seed fell apart and missed the playoffs, just barely losing to the Miami Heat, who ended up making the NBA Finals last year. We all know that. We also all know the moves that they made this year. They brought in Javon Carter. Uh, Patrick Beverly left, but they still have Alex Caruso. And the rotations are going to be really weird. Caruso isn't a point guard. Javon Carter, I'm from West Virginia, I have love for. I, th I think he's actually like ridiculously underrated. I don't think either can playmake. And this offense needs playmaking as an identity. Um, it also needs three-point scoring. And I, I don't think Kobe White is a playmaker. But I liked what I saw out of him last year. Tell me you didn't like Kobe White last year. I mean, he had a down season, but man, man, I just think he's so gifted. He's he's not like an all-star, and I don't think he has the ability to be an all-star, but I do think he can be an elite sixth man. 18 and a half points per game with really, really, really good splits. And I think he's probably the starting point guard for this unit. I think they're, they're going to need the three-point shooting. And if Patrick Williams takes a leap, it further secures Kobe White and having the opportunity in the offense. It's basically a feel thing. I loved what I saw out of him last year. I have no clue what the Bulls are going to look like this year. And I don't think Javon Carter is going to average 12 a game. Someone's got to score points on this team, and I think it's Kobe White, so look out for it. Finally, Jaden McDaniels. Jaden McDaniels won't necessarily have more opportunity. If anything, he'll have less. But I think he's going to win Defensive Player of the Year this year. I think the Timberwolves are going to be good. And if they could get to the three seed, I think he wins Defensive Player of the Year and Most Improved, which would be refreshing as fuck. Because in the last few years, Defensive Player of the Year, Most Improved, a lot of these awards have been flawed in the way that we give them. Basically, Sixth Man of the Year and Most Improved are who scored the most points unexpectedly. Is that how the most improved player should look? I'm also ethically against giving it to second-year players like Jaw Morant. Jaw is incredible, and I should probably close the blinds in my Memphis hotel while I'm talking about this, but I don't think he deserved the award. I, I just don't. I, don't. I think you're supposed to improve your second year in the league. It's just not what that award is for. He won Rookie of the Year. You don't have, like, year after Rookie of the Year award, so they just gave him that to give him something. He was an all-star. He was an all-NBA guard. Isn't that damn enough? This Wolves team is going to be a lot better than people realize, and I talked about their depth earlier. Carl Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert, I'm not saying is the dream combination, but what they are are both top 35 players. 
if they stay healthy, there's no way they're not a five-seed or above. And if Ant is who he's showing himself to be in the World Cup, I think they're even better than that. And he's going to be allowed to do a lot more on offense. And so will Carl Anthony Towns because of the defensive anchors in Jaden McDaniels and Rudy Gobert. I would love to see it. I would live to see a most improved player be a defensive-oriented wing. We've only got two more here, so I'm going to try to blaze through them so I can get to bed and you guys can do anything else. To my buddies listening, let's have a beer. Text me. Pretty pretty cool, pretty good friend. Listen, If you're listening and you're not my buddy, kind of suspect, seems like you might be my buddy. <laughs> Nobody's enemy listens to them talk about basketball for an hour. You might think you hate me, but we're buds. We're going to talk trade deadline. These are trade deadline sellers this next year. There's some obvious ones and uh, some more obvious ones. Uh, I want to talk about specific players when we talk teams. The Raptors are an obvious answer for this. I think that there's no way they don't make moves this trade deadline, and it really just depends on what their season looks like as to what moves those are. But they're an interesting deadline team because they just guaranteed four years of Jakob Pertl, and Siakam is on an expiring deal. But being a deadline team doesn't necessarily mean they move Siakam. But if they don't move Siakam, they'll move Gary Trent. So successful season, they keep Siakam, they move Gary Trent. Unsuccessful season, they keep Trent, they trade Siakam. And I really don't see another way around it. Toronto sneakily, if the season were to go well, has the assets to go in on a Lillard-like trade. Gary Trent Jr. makes $18.5 million. Chris Boucher, who is on a $12 million deal, gets us to 30. Thad Young and Otto Porter get us to $44 million with four players. They still have basically all of their draft assets, as well as Grady Dick and Precious Achua. I don't think this will be a successful season for them, but you can imagine a world in which a legitimate shot creator, three-point shooter, and leader like Damian Lillard could make them contender-ish. And nobody thought they would win when they got Kawhi, and nobody would pick them to win if they got Dame. But I think that's kind of the point. Speaking of Dame, Portland is an obvious trade deadline team. But Dame is going to get moved, and I pray to God he's moved before the deadline just because I want to think about who's going to be on the team. I want to, like, fantasize about how Jame Hawkes is going to be, like, a Razorback on defense for us. Portland has a couple guys um, that if Dame goes, we've got to get off of Nurk's contract. Nurkic makes... million this year, and he's on the books two more years after this. And a lot of people think one of the hookups in the Miami deal is that we want uh, Dame and Nurkic included. But that would be $45 million for Dame, $16 million for Nurkic. That's $61 million in salary, um, which means we would basically have to take back Lowry, Duncan Robinson, and whatever the filler from the Tyler Hero deal would be, uh, which I would not be against but this isn't about dame dame is going to be traded it's about jeremy grant who this offseason signed a five-year 160 million dollar deal and is in the prime of his career he once again averaged 20 points per game on a bad team we don't know how good jeremy grant is but i watched maybe 30 35 of the portland games this year 
he's fun. He's a great energy guy. You really love rooting for him when he's on your team. He hit that game winner against Phoenix. I think he hit actually two game winners this year. And he's a hell of a three-point shooter. Pretty good team defender. Pretty good playmaker. Jeremy Grant is never going to be an all-star. But he's a player that a lot of contenders could use. Do not be shocked if Dallas comes up. I think Dallas is the perfect team for him. Imagining a starting five of Kyrie Irving, Luka Doncic, Grant Williams, Jeremy Grant, <laughs> Derek Lively, you pray to God, I think is really, really cool. And I think they could get him for not that much because of the contract. I think Tim Hardaway Jr. plus Jaden Hardy to a third team probably gets it done. Finally on the list, the Chicago Bulls cannot not be mentioned here because earlier we talked about the Utah Jazz. What would it take to have a successful Utah Jazz season? Well, when you look at the Bulls, what do we take to have a successful season is almost a sad answer. Levine and DeMar, do they stay healthy? Can they maybe be the fifth seed in the East? There's no way they get home court for playoffs. It's just it's not in question. Nothing could happen for that. Can Vooch maybe have a bounce-back season? Can he hit threes more readily? Maybe Kobe White jumps off. Desumu, who had a bad year last year, bounces back. Patrick Williams takes a jump. It's just not good for them. And this is the first year in a couple years that they've had their own pick. Because from the Vooch trade, they traded two firsts. Um, but they could tank this year if they wanted to. DeMar DeRozan is on an expiring contract. Levine is there for a while. Vooch is there for a while. Kobe White is there for a while. Sumu and Javon Carter are there for a while. Aside from that, they don't have a lot of young talent, and they got to pay Patrick Williams this year. Who's to say he's worth paying? They're taking a swing in one direction or the other, and if they have any sense left of them at all, they'll sell, which probably means they'll buy. They'll probably trade Patrick Williams and Daylon Terry for <laughs> Jeremy Grant later this year. But what they should do is tear the whole damn thing down and trade Levine and trade DeMar. I want to give a fun DeMar trade that I was thinking about because I'm like, you know, what value could you even get for DeMar DeRozan, you know? I think DeMar DeRozan to the Nets this season is fucking so fun. The Nets don't really have a good point guard. Maybe Ben Simmons comes back and is something like that. I won't dare put my name on that take, though. Uh, so you have to assume the starting guard is Spencer Dinwiddie. Right now, they're starting five. Spencer, Mikkel Bridges, Dorian Finney-Smith, Cam Johnson, uh, Nick Claxton, who I love. Uh, Nick Claxton out of Georgia also was kind of a good three-point shooter in college. Not only is he a really good defender, not only can he like step out to the three-point line and recover and have he has good lateral quickness, but he once was a shooter. And you just hope that sample size was big enough that it could eventually project because he's only 24. I think DeMar would be really fun moving Dorian Finney-Smith to the bench. Imagine this. Trade Ben Simmons, two first-round picks, one to get off the deal, one to add DeMar. So their new starting five, Spencer Dinwiddie, Mikel Bridges, DeMar DeRozan, Cam Johnson, Nick Claxton. You have incredible point-of-attack defense and rim protection. And you have really great three-point shooting. Let DeMar take fucking 1,000 shots a game. 
let him and Mikael Bridge trade off with the ball and Cam Johnson float around on the outside, picking and popping his way to 25 a game. I love it. And it's a low-risk deal because if the Nets want to go big game hunting, they get off the Ben Simmons money early. If it doesn't work out, Ben Simmons has two years left on his deal. Tomorrow has one. So if this doesn't work, they get off the money this season and can maybe go grab a guy. If it does work, they still have the picks and assets to build around this existing core. I don't know for sure that it's the perfect deal, but I think it's sort of a win-win for teams that have lose-lose scenarios written all over them this season. The last storyline I want to touch on is let's swing it back to the Hawks. We start with the Hawks. We'll end with the Hawks. It's are the Hawks contenders with Siakam? So let's do it. Let's do like the mock trade, what it would have to be. If it was Raptors-Hawks, you basically, to make the salaries work, Siakam makes $37 million a year. Um, so it would have to be for them to consider DeAndre Hunter, who makes 20 with A.J. Griffin, Kobe Bufkin, and let's see, how much salary is that? Still need $2.4 million in salary. Uh, let's just say Patty Mills. If you only need two, let's do Bruno Fernando, because who the fuck cares about him? Yeah, I kinda I kinda like that. So the Hawks could trade DeAndre Hunter, AJ Griffin, Kobe Bufkin, Bruno Fernando, as well as three first round picks and maybe some additional pick swaps. And the Raptors would trade Pascal Siakam. So let's talk about it for each team, because I, I think I really love it. Let's do Raptors first, just to end it on the Hawks. They need a guard. If they're trading Siakam, they cannot trade him for another logjam at forward. And A.J. Griffin is a really like sexy wing. The dude can shoot the lights out of the ball. And if it weren't for his knee, he would have been a top-five pick. He stayed healthy all of last season. He looked fantastic. He shot the shit out of the ball. DeAndre Hunter is a guy, and I hate to say it, but he's mostly salary in this deal. The Raptors in this scenario starting five could be Kobe Bufkin, A.J. Griffin, O.G. Ananobi, Scotty Barnes, Jakob Pertl. Kobe Bufkin, I read in an NBA draft comment um, on Reddit maybe four months ago how impressive his finishing was. So I watched some gameplay from college, and it just looked so clean. I liked him as a shot creator. I, I thought his ability to like create for himself and drive to the lane and finish with contact was so good. He looked terrible in G League. He did not look ready to be an NBA player. And for the 15th pick in the draft, you would want more out of it. But the G League gives and the G League takes because we all thought Kevin Knox was going to be like an elite elite player but he wasn't and Kobe Bufkin could still be very very good out of Michigan I like that core and I think that plus picks lets you figure out who OG Ananobi is which is an important part of this aspect because he's going to need paid soon it still gives you the trade chip of Gary Tritt who's still on an expiring deal maybe you can move him as well and get additional assets or have him start move AJ Griffin to the bench I think it makes a lot more sense for the direction of the franchise though what about the Hawks? The Hawks starting five would be Trey Young, D 
DeJounte Murray, Sadiq Bey, Pascal Siakam, Clint Capella. Onyeko Okongwu is sure to overthrow Clint Capella at some point. I keep being wrong about when that is, though. And Clint still has two years left on his deal. Onyeka, you have to pay after this year. You would think that this would be the year to figure out what you have in the guy. I think they know, though. I think they know, and I think they'll have versatility in these lineups because Onyeka can play the four, and Siakam can play small ball five as well. Um, having a rotation of those three as your big dudes in your front court is really, really cool. Who ends up in that three spot I think can change a lot per lineup. I think you want Bogdan on the bench. Bogdanovich could be in a six-man role. Just let him create with whoever he can. Patty Mills they picked up. Who knows how much he has left in the tank. Um, but Sadiq Bey and who he projects to be I don't know. It could be all over the place. You guys remember that random 51-point Sadiq Bay game? He went like 8 from 11 from 3. He is a shooter, and he has a lot of confidence as a shooter. And if you can give him space in this offense, which a big three of Siakam, Murray, and Young would do, maybe he can thrive into the player he's going to be. But if he can't, Jalen Johnson is a smart, all-around, perfect role player for this team. He just doesn't have the shot, and you do worry if Trey, DeJounte, and Siakam can't shoot, what sort of lineups you're going to get in. So I, I think if they believe in Sadiq Bay, this team's a contender. I like them better than anybody than Boston in the Eastern Conference. If Sadiq Bay can't shoot, they're not a contender, and I don't know if they're the fourth seed. I don't know how much weight you want to put in the Sadiq Bay. You just traded four second-round picks for him, so maybe not that much. This has been fun. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a rating wherever you're listening to it, if the podcast provider allows. If it doesn't, skip a stone for me. Walk down to the riverbank, pick up a smooth one with your hands, and try to get six or seven for me and my pawpaw. <laughs> I am probably going to try to commit to doing these every Wednesday-ish, although that schedule is going to be kind of all over the place. There's nothing to talk about. There's nothing to talk about. And if I got to spend time with my cats, I'm going to damn do it because I got one that's kind of getting older. Thank you guys for listening. My name is Morgan Cahill. Well, in theory, I'll be back here next Wednesday.